Amen. Thank you, Tony. So our scripture reading this morning is from Mark chapter 8. If you have a Bible and you want to turn there. Uh, if not, that's okay. It'll be on the screen behind me. If you're watching from home, it'll be on your screen as well. And it's also printed for you in the worship folder. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27, as we continue our way through the gospel of Mark. Now, this is a fairly familiar scene, Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ. And so let's read together beginning in verse, again, beginning in verse 27 through the end of the chapter. We've been skipping around a bit, so just hang in there with us. We're trying to make up for some, we lost a Sunday with the hurricane and some other things, so getting to the good parts. Let's read together. When Jesus went on, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets, and he said, he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous, sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord, would you say with me? The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. All right. There are all kinds of ideas rolling around in the world about who Jesus is. Some say... He was never even, you know, never even born. He never even existed. He is just a figment of the church's imagination. Others are willing to acknowledge that he is a historical person, but maybe call him a good moral teacher. People of other faiths like Islam even call him a prophet. But, and here's the question in verse 29, but who do you say that I am? It's a question that every person has to answer ultimately. And what's fascinating is in, <clears throat> excuse me, in the Greek, uh, one of the ways that uh, the Greek language allows you to add emphasis and to do some creative things is you can change word order around. There's no really, uh, it's, it's one, of, one of the things that makes reading Greek really hard, is word order can get all confused. And, and you rearrange words to add emphasis. And the first word is always the most important word in a sentence. And the first word in this sentence, in verse 29, there is you. You, Jesus says. How about you? Who do you say that I am? That you is emphatic. And as we read it, it means this, that Jesus' Jesus's question is put to each one of us individually this morning as well. He's asking you, who do you say that I am? That's the question before us this morning. Who do you say that I am? Now, Peter, Peter in the text, is the, he was the spokesman for the rest of the disciples as usual. Okay? But, but Mark's report of the interaction between Jesus and Peter is condensed from the other Gospels 
per usual. And what Mark does is he actually uses Peter to provoke his readers to consideration of how their own lives have taken shape around their answer to that particular question. And that's what, he would, that's what he would have us meditate on this morning, and so it's what we're going to do. And so here's what we're going to, we're going we're to use Peter as an object lesson to consider our own lives. And as we do so, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see, first, that there's much that Peter got right. So let's talk about what Peter got right. But secondly, there was much that Peter got wrong, right? Correct? Yeah. And so we got to talk about what Peter got wrong. And then, thirdly, in the interplay of those two things, we've got to ask what it all means for us. Who do you say that I am? The good news for us this morning is that Jesus does give us an answer, and here is Jesus' answer to that question. He says, I am a king, but I'm a king going to a cross. And if you want to follow me, then you've got to go to the cross too. That's what this text teaches. So let's just walk through it together, can we? Uh, as we look at each of these things. First, let's talk about what Peter got right. We should commend Peter. Peter gets a bad rap for being kind of a bumbling idiot sometimes. He's not. He's a very spiritually astute person, and he does get it right here. Look at how he answers. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, rightly, verse 29, you are the Christ. Peter rightly intuited that Jesus was more than what the crowds claimed. Remember, look back in those verses. They said that he was John the Baptist, and that, that opinion probably originated in King Herod's paranoia. Herod, of course, beheaded John. And then reports began to surface, and he came to believe that John had been raised from the dead and was back to haunt him. And so some said, Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Others believed, we see there, that he was Elijah, an Old Testament prophet, who the scribes gave excuse the big word, eschatological significance to. They, they said that, the, that Elijah would come back. He was taken up into heaven. He didn't die. He was taken up into heaven with chariots of fire, the, the uh, Old Testament passage says. And so the, the scribes thought that he would come back uh, kind of miraculously. He would just reappear on the earth as a forerunner to the Messiah. And so some people had begun to believe that Jesus was that Elijah figure. Others believed him to be a prophet, and you see that there in those verses, 27 and 28. Now, what all of those have in mind, what those three things all have in common is they don't go far enough. They are expressions of curiosity. They're expressions of admiration. But that, but that is not nearly enough when it comes to Jesus. Tim Keller uh, has put it like this, you know, in a way that Tim Keller does. He says, Jesus cannot just be liked. His claims make us either kill him or crown him. Jesus is either the most important thing, so important that your whole life, your whole life, every part of it, all of it starts to take shape around who he is to you. He's so important that your whole life has to come into alignment with what you believe or he's not important at all. But there's no middle ground. That's how C.S. Lewis put it. He said, Christianity... If false is of no importance, and if true is of infinite importance, the only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Now, here's what that means. And this is, this is interesting to think about to me. The person, who, <clears throat> the person who hates Jesus and wants nothing to do with him because they understand the implications of the claims he made about himself 
they are closer to the truth than the person who thinks that Jesus is nice. And yet American evangelicalism seems to produce people who admire Jesus, but would die for their politics. Who approach their faith as if it is moderately important, but it's not worth their everything. It's not worth their all. And I grieve. I was thinking about this. My kids will come to the next service. I grieve the way that I have modeled this for my own kids in my, in my life. I'm so afraid that my children, I have four, and they're 22, 20, 18, and, and almost 16. I, I grieve, and I'm so afraid that the residue of my leadership in their life and all the things I've tried to do is that they would grow up to merely admire Jesus and nothing more. And so my boys watch this, Canaan and Isaac, if you're watching, Jesus Christ is of infinite importance. And if you believe in him, then the only rational way to live your life is to give him everything. To give him all your heart, to give him all your life, to go all in. You go all in, you crown him. That's, that's the, that, is, that is the only thing that makes sense. And I would say the same thing to you too. The greatest challenge for pastors in the 21st century, in, in, in the West at least, is not to convince people to believe in Jesus. It is to convince them to live out the implications of that belief in the practical day-to-day -day of their lives and their decision-making. Peter suspects that Jesus is more than just a prophet. I say suspects because he does not yet realize the implications of the claims that he's making here. He says, look there, verse 29, you are the Christ. And Christ is just the Greek rendering of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. And the Hebrew kings were anointed when they took the throne. They were consecrated by God. They were empowered by God's spirit for that particular work. But the Christ, the Messiah, is the, the penultimate king. Those other kings were just forerunners of that one true king who would rule not just over the nation of Israel, but over the whole world. That singular figure that all of the Old Testament and the prophets particularly spoke of who would carry out God's purpose and bring shalom and make all things new. And this is what Peter claimed of Jesus, that he is the one, that he is that one. Now, we know much more than Peter, of course. I mean, there's much he got right, but we'll see there's much he was still confused about. Christians claim that Jesus of Nazareth son to Joseph and Mary, was, in fact, very God of very God, born of a woman, but also born of God and without any trace of our sinful condition, and that he came not just to lead Israel to victory over their political enemies, he came to reconcile the sinful world to God and to heal all that had been broken by our treachery and rebellion and ultimately to overthrow the tyranny of death so that all who believe in him might have eternal life. And if Jesus was, in fact, who he claimed to be, if he is God in the flesh, if he truly made it possible for God and man to dwell together again and out of that reunion to remake the whole world, then do you understand that is a life-rearranging truth? It's too big a truth to make a small difference in the way we live our lives. Demands your whole life, all or nothing. So I, I think Tim Keller is right. You can kill him. And they did. You can kill him because you realize that he demands everything and that's too much and that's why they killed him. Or you can serve him. You can crown him. He doesn't serve you. You serve him. You can crown him. But those are your only real options. You can't just like him. You can't merely admire him. You can't give him the leftovers. That's what Peter got right. He understood. Secondly, 
In all that he got right, there was still much that he got wrong. So let's look and see what Peter got wrong. Because here we see it kind of, <laughs> what I love about, have you noticed in the Gospels that like Peter's life was a roller coaster? It went from really good to really bad really quickly. Like high to low really quick. Peter would like be the shining example. He, was, he went from the goat, you know, to the hero, back to the, I mean, it was like, it was just a roller, emotional roller coaster of Peter's life. I just can't imagine it. Peter imagined that Jesus would accomplish the work of Messiah. He rightly identified Jesus as Messiah, but here's what he got wrong. He imagined that Jesus would accomplish the work of Messiah through a throne and not a cross. Now, let's not be too hard on Peter. We think the same thing, too. And this is why Jesus immediately began to clarify about what Messiah work actually was. It says, verse 31... He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and killed and after three days rise again. This was clearly against the expectations of the Jews and it was very upsetting to Peter and it's very upsetting to some of us. He took Jesus aside, Peter did, and began to rebuke him. Isn't that the best? Can you imagine that? Peter rebuking the Son of God. Peter intended for Jesus a throne. Because that is how he imagined Messiah would get his work done, as I've said. Jesus intended for himself a cross, and that's, and that, that's where the clash came. Now, we shouldn't be too hard on Peter, as I've said, because Jesus invokes the title of Son of Man for himself. Do you see that? He says, the Son of Man, verse 31, must suffer many things and be rejected and so forth. And it's a very explicit reference to Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel 7, we get this heavenly vision, uh, the Son of Man, this is the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament, and it was, a, it was a particular passage that really, really informed the imagination of the Jewish people when they thought of their, of their king and their Messiah. You have the Son of Man coming to ride on the clouds, and he stood before God, and in the scene, he was given authority and power to rule over the world and to establish an indestructible kingdom among all the peoples and nations of the earth. And it's a passage, like I said, that very much informed the Jewish expectation of what Messiah would be and do. They imagined, when they thought of Messiah, victory and success, not rejection, suffering, and death, which is why it says he began to teach them, verse 31. He had to correct their expectations. And it says, verse 32, he spoke plainly. He had to unravel that tangle from the Old Testament scriptures for these people. Now, Peter was just a product of the popular stereotype of a triumphant Messiah. He recoiled at the thought of Jesus' suffering because no one had connected Daniel 7 with the death and defeat. That Jesus endured. Jesus did. He said the Son of Man would gain his kingdom not through a throne but through a cross. He is the king. He's very explicit. He's very clear. But he's a king going to the cross. And it was the second part that caused Peter so much trouble. It was too far outside of his mental map, of his expectations. But here's the question I think we have to wrestle with this morning. Are we any different? And I have a real concern here. I have a real concern. And it's, it's really what's called the health and wealth gospel. But it's so easy to kind of demonize that and not recognize the way that that way of thinking has trickled down and become mainstream evangelical doctrine that just says something like this, that everything goes better with Jesus. Like if your life's falling apart, believe in Jesus and it'll turn around. It's what Martin Luther called a theology of glory as opposed to a theology of the cross, a theology of glory that imagines faith as a fight against and to overcome weakness and suffering towards victory. Not the embrace of those things because they, in fact, are the way that the kingdom of God moves forward in the world. So Peter rebuked Jesus privately. You see that? This is great. 
Peter rebuked him privately. He took Jesus aside to have a private conversation, and then Jesus returned the favor by rebuking Peter publicly. Look there, it says, turning and seeing his disciples. In other words, he knew, okay, this isn't just Peter's problem. You know, he knew that we had a problem with this, and so he made it a public rebuke. For our sake, too, he said, and these are strong words. Look at this, verse 33, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Now, that's quite strong. I mean, that's an insult. You know what I'm saying? Jesus calling you Satan, that'll, that'll, that'll sting a little bit. Jesus recognizes in Peter's rebuke the voice of the evil one trying to get him off mission. If you remember, at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus squared off with the devil in the wilderness. And Satan showed him at one point in that temptation, just after his baptism, Satan showed him the kingdoms of the world. All of the glory and power of all the thrones of the whole world. And he said, I'll give it all to you. It's mine to give. I'll give it all to you if you'll worship me. I'll give you a throne. I'll give you a throne. I'll give you glory. I'll give you power. I'll give you prestige. And you can rule over all of it. And it was a temptation to get him off mission. And Jesus, in that moment, in the wilderness with the enemy, he said no to a throne. And this is fascinating. It says in Luke's account, uh, in Luke chapter 4, it says that Satan, after being defeated three times over by Jesus, he departed until an opportune time. Guess what? This is that opportune time. In the sincerity and rebuke of his best friend, he came once again and tempted Jesus in the very same way to say no to the cross and say yes to a throne And so Peter didn't know it, but he had sided with evil because he had set his mind on the things of man, not the things of God. Now, I have to be shorter here than I want to be. Oh, it's so hard. But if you look at that verse, things of man refers to earthly realities. Peter thought Messiah would have an earthly kingdom. He would vanquish the Romans, you know, that sort of thing. Jesus elsewhere says, my kingdom is not of this world. He did not come for political victory, for military success. He came to save us from the real enemy. Our sins have separated us from God. That is our real problem. That is the real crisis in the world. That is the source of all the other problems. And unless that gets fixed, nothing else really matters. And in order to save us from our sins and not just our circumstances, Jesus had to hang upon a cross, not sit on a throne. He came into the world to reconcile us to God by bearing our sins and dying in our place to satisfy God's justice, paying the penalty for our record of disobedience against God. He became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That was the mission. All the rest that Messiah would do, the healing of the whole world and the shalom that he would bring, it all flowed from first making God and man right with one another again. And the only way to accomplish that ultimate work was through the cross and so it says he began to teach them that the son of man must look at that verse 31 he must suffer and be killed and after three days rise again he must do those things it's the only way that the real work that the real mission could be accomplished peter was content with a political messiah he was not concerned with his sins he didn't see his sins against god as the real problem and that's what he got wrong 
He had, in, he had in mind only the things of man and not the things of God. He only had circumstantial horizontal realities. He was thinking through those things. He wasn't thinking through the real issue, which is always, am I right, rightly related to God? And how can, I be, how can I be and how can I stay rightly related to God? Because if I can get that figured out, then everything else is going to take care of itself. And that was Peter's problem. But let me apply this in one other way as well. Because I think it's significant, and, and maybe we'll have time to come back to this. I don't know, but here I want to apply it just before we move on to the last point. The things of man is also shorthand for the idea that is still prevalent among people of faith, even today, that evil can only be overcome through a show of power. That if you want to vanquish evil, you have to grasp for power and then be the only person ever in the entire history of the human race to actually use that power for good and not just to perpetuate the evil. Power corrupts, right? Absolute power does what? Corrupts absolutely. Now, maybe I'm just using this as a way to be able to geek out on Tolkien for just a minute, but this is the main thrust of J.R.R. Tolkien's writing, even in the new show on Amazon, if you've not seen it. What, uh, the, what's it called? Do you know what it's called? The Rings of what? Power. The rings, did you just call me a nerd? Man, somebody called me a nerd. That's the best. That's awesome. Listen, if you knew how geeked out about this Tony was, you would call him the nerd and not me. In fact, I should probably just move over and let you come up and explain this to all of us. Although, if you'd like to get to lunch today, I should probably not do that. But here's the thing. Rings of power. Rings of power. Because that is, that is kind of the underlying theme of the whole mythology that, that Tolkien is working out. For Tolkien, the lust for power is never the solution. It's the cause of evil. And K.B. Hoyle, who, who comments uh, in Christ and popular culture a lot, and I typically read what she writes because I do think she's very insightful, commenting on Tolkien's work, she said this. She said, this is what a lust for power does to people. It deforms them. It twists them out of their natural shape. And this is kind of what happens over and over again, not only in those early, you know, things that the Amazon um, series is, is working on, but in the actual trilogy itself. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the book, and that makes me sad if you are, but if you are, maybe you saw the movie. And, uh, and, if, you, and if you've seen the movie, in the first of the three movies, you, there's this moment where Boromir who is one of the main characters, he's part of the fellowship that's taking the, the ring of power, not wielding it, but taking it to, uh, you know, to the mountain, the, the mountain where it was forged to be, to be destroyed. But, but Boromir tries to take the ring from Frodo, who is the bearer of the ring. Anyway, sorry, if you're not familiar, you're lost already, but it's okay. Sean Bean plays it perfectly. It is an amazing scene. Uh, you see this change come over him to where evil just begins to grip his heart as he reaches out to try to, try to grab and wield uh, this powerful ring. And here's how K.B. Hoyle puts it. He, she says, he forgets himself as a sworn member of the fellowship to protect Frodo on his journey to destroy the ring. He forgets himself also as a good captain of Gondor. The ring twists him into an oathbreaker, a self-seeker, an attacker of the defenseless. Tolkien illustrates well that when people turn to power to overcome evil, they become the evil themselves. Peter did not know it. But in trying to avert Jesus from suffering, he was opposing the deep, a deep mystery of God. 
And the deep mystery of God revealed to us in the gospel, and very powerfully here, is that the only thing that can vanquish evil is suffering love. And that's true power. The prophet Isaiah said, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. Our way of thinking is typically something like this. Power is always the best option. A throne is always better than a cross. You can get more done on a throne than you can on a cross. And so a throne is a great option, even for good. You can get more good done from a throne than from a cross. God's way of thinking is the exact opposite. Weakness is strength. Defeat is is victory. Suffering love moves the needle of the world. And and in the end, all of the strength and glory of man will bow before the weakness of God. So there's a lot that Peter gets wrong. He gets it right, but he also gets it wrong. But then lastly, because we need to round to the finish here, what does this mean for us? What does all this mean for us? Well, fortunately, Jesus anticipated this question. And because he's a good teacher, it says he begins to teach them here. He's a good teacher, and so he doesn't leave us wondering. So let's read the whole thing again, because it is significant. Beginning in verse 34, showing my age. I need to pull my glasses out to be able to read this. Let's read it. Calling the crowds to himself with his disciples, he said this. Let's just look at this again. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. For, take up his cross and follow me. For, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man in return, give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now there's so much in those verses. What does this mean for our lives? It means that we have to count the cost of true discipleship to Jesus. If you're here and you're not a Christian and you're wondering what that means or you're, you're trying to decide whether or not that might be something that you would give your life to, you need to know that at the outset, right here at the very beginning, Jesus says, if you're going to live with me, if you're my disciples, where I am, those who follow me will be also. What I'm doing, they will be doing. The conditions of my life will become the conditions of their life. And so if you're going to sincerely attempt to follow Jesus in this life, then you have to be aware that it involves an embracing of our own suffering. If Jesus is king, but he's the king that's going to a cross, and if you're going to follow him, you've got to go to a cross too. You've got to choose. You've got to choose weakness and suffering as the condition of discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, he said, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. Now that's significant. He says, it's not, the cross is not the result of being obedient to Jesus. Jesus puts a cross in front of you right at the beginning and says, look, weigh the options. Count the cost, because here's what it is. It meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. And then he goes on. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. In fact, every command of Jesus is a call to die. And yet, in Psalm 119, the psalmist says over and over again, Oh, how I love your law. It's my delight. It's my joy. Every command of Jesus is a call to die. Suffering then is the badge of true discipleship. Now, here's why I quote that often to you. is because he didn't just talk the talk. That man, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, walked the walk. And you can question his theology. You know, he was a neoliberal, whatever. You can, but you cannot question the way he lived his life. If you're not familiar with his story, he was part of the German resistance in opposition to Hitler in Germany before and during World War II. And he led an underground seminary movement to train pastors who were together united in their opposition against Hitler. And so 
the Nazi party very much wanted him dead. They tried to kill him, but he actually, there's a time where he got out of the country. His friends convinced him uh, to go to America to be safe so that he could write and lead from a distance. And so they smuggled him out and he got to America. But as the story goes, within 24 hours of landing in New York Harbor, he regretted leaving. And 26 days later, he boarded a ship and returned to Germany where he was eventually captured, imprisoned, and killed because he knew the mission requires me to be there. And so if you want a definition of what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus, it means that those people who follow Jesus are always, the momentum of their life is away from comfort and towards need. Away from comfort, away from familiar, away from ease, towards need. Not the other way around, because the way we so much live our lives is the other way around, that we are moving more and more away from need towards comfort, towards familiarity, towards ease. But for those who follow Jesus, it should be the opposite. I was talking to a church planter yesterday. Uh, he, he moved to Temple Terrace. So Tony, if you're going to plant a church, get ready. His coach told him, if you're going to plant a church, get ready. You put a bullseye on your life for the enemy. And this guy was talking about this. He moved away from family in Mississippi where he grew up and he lived his whole life to a place, Temple Terrace in, in uh, at USF there, where he knew nobody. And what's happened is, is they've done that. Their life has completely fallen to pieces. Their car didn't even make it on the trip from Mississippi. It broke down in Tallahassee. Uh, they bought a house and it's just been one thing after the next. I mean, thousands and thousands of dollars of unexpected repairs and then a hurricane. And they were baptized by fire. And so I went to just check on him, see how he was doing, because I knew he was having a hard time. And when I asked him how he was doing, this is what he said. It's been, man, it's been really hard. But it's been good. And we needed this because we'd become too comfortable in Mississippi. And this has been great. That's taking up your cross. Now, the rest of this paragraph is a well-constructed argument. Don't sleep on Jesus. He's a good, he, he makes good arguments. It's a well-constructed argument for choosing suffering, for choosing to take up your cross and follow. Do you notice, and if you have a Bible, you might want to, like, if you, if you notice beginning in verse 34, every verse thereafter begins with the same preposition, for. Look at that, verse 35, for whoever would take up his life. Verse 36, for what is a profit of man. Verse 37, for what can a man give in return for his soul. Verse 38, for whoever is ashamed. So Jesus is just taking us step by step through an argument to wrestle our own hearts toward obedience to what he's calling us to here. So he says, let's begin in verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Let him move away from comfort and ease and predictability and familiarity towards need, towards calling, towards others. And here's his reason. Here's why. Because, verse 35. So follow me. Verse 35, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will save it. Now, the word life there is psyche. It's psychology. It means your identity, your personhood. And Jesus is saying, if you put all of your energy into developing your authentic self, if you curate your life, if you buy into expressive individualism, which is so rampant in our culture today, if you filter everything through your personal emotional well-being and how you feel about it and how it makes you feel about your life and whether you're satisfied with the things you're doing, if you do that, you won't find life. You'll be empty. If you want to find meaning and purpose and joy 
Here's how you do it. You lose yourself in the service of something greater than you, some greater mission, something bigger than just you, because there's more happiness to be found in giving than receiving, Acts 20, 33 says. So don't be afraid to take up your cross. You'll lose some things if you do for sure. You'll lose comfort. You'll lose personal freedom. You'll probably lose time and money, but Jesus promises if you do it, you'll gain more than you'll lose. If you choose a selfish life, free of any inconvenience or hardship, what he tells us here is that you do not have a proper valuation of, the, of your soul versus worldly things. Don't try to save your life. He says, lose it. Here's why. Verse 36, because, because that four can really be translated because, because what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Here's what Jesus says. If you get everything you want, if you reach the top, the top of your, of your business, if you, the top of your financial goals, whatever, if, if you get everything you're aiming at, it will never be enough because your soul is larger than the whole world. It is greater. Jeremiah Burroughs said, the soul of every human person is worth more than all the world. A single soul is worth more, it's more valuable than all the gold and the diamonds in the earth. And if you make it your ambition to gain the world by avoiding suffering, here's what Jesus says. This is what the language here means. If you make it your ambition to gain the world by avoiding suffering, you are doing damage to your soul. And if you keep at it, if you keep hedging against the hard things, you might lose your soul. And it's not a good trade-off. Remember, Jesus said, I have come that you may have life Abundant life, and this is this. See, this is what's so hard to wrap your mind around. This is his call to abundant life. Take up your cross. That's abundant life. You might not have all the comforts and enjoyments the world offers, but your soul will come alive, and I promise you, that is more joy. That is more fun than anything else you could do. And so have the courage. Have the courage to call this what it is. Why do we do this? Why, why is it we have such a hard time with this? Jesus tells us in this very last verse, verse 37, he says, take up your cross, Follow me because if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose it, you'll save it. And you should do this because what is a profit if you gain the whole world, forfeit your soul? But then he, he, one more step in this argument, he tells us what it is really at the bottom of why we have such a hard time with this. He, Jesus says, why do we do this? Jesus says, because, verse 37, whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. There is a social cost that we are most times unwilling to endure. There is a loss of social standing that comes with cross-bearing, that comes with faithfulness to Jesus. There is a, there's a, there's a um, certain amount of just um, unsettledness and hardness. Jesus says clearly, though, that whatever loss you incur will ultimately be gained. Whatever shame you might incur in this life because you choose to follow him, it will become eternal glory. And conversely, he says in that verse, whatever honor you achieve <clears throat> through disobedience will be to your shame on the day of judgment. The scales will be balanced in the end. And so, take up your cross. Don't be afraid of what you might miss out on. Don't be embarrassed. See, it all comes back <clears throat> to that question we started with. The question I believe the Spirit would pose to each of our hearts, who do you say that I am? If you say, 
like Peter did, that he is the Christ, then you should crown him and follow him wherever he leads you. You should give him your everything. If he, if he is your king, if he is the king, then he is worthy of everything. But if he is a king who came for a cross, not a throne, then his dying love for you should make you doubly ready to live not for yourself but for him, compelled by his love, Paul says, compelled, controlled by his love toward a life of dying love for others so that his kingdom might come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His, here's what, here's what we're really saying at the end of the day, okay? His is, in fact, a love that will not let you go. I, don't you love the title of that hymn? I mean, it's such a great, a love that will not let you go. Think about the words again because we sing them but don't ponder them sometimes. Here's what that hymn says. Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. Listen to this. I give thee back the life I owe that in thine ocean's depths its flow may richer, fuller be. You want a rich, full life? You have to give your life to Jesus. But here's what that means. O cross that lifteth up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust life's glory, dead. And from that ground there blossoms red life that shall endless be. Do you see it? Do you hear the call of faith there? Come to Jesus. Take up your cross. Follow him. He is worthy. Amen? It's the only way to find life that is truly life. So let's pray together. Would you pray with me? So Father, you are rich in mercy. We thank you for the gift of your beloved son, the Lord Jesus, whose self-giving love upon the cross for our sins calls for our greatest adoration and obedience. Forgive us for so hesitantly and so half-heartedly obeying the call to take up our own cross and following you. Jesus, you have modeled for us the movement of a life away from comfort and towards need and coming all the way from heaven to earth, leaving the glory and beauty and perfection of heaven to come to this place to save us. We give you thanks. Holy Spirit, make this word a swift word, passing from our ears to our hearts and from our hearts to our life and lip that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word but accomplish in us that for which it has been given. For the sake of Christ and his kingdom, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. That song is a master class in Christian discipleship, but there's one line where it says, with thy favor, losses gain. And that's great news, right? Because here's what this benediction means. This, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, that as you go from this place, God promises to turn his face towards you. He promises that the countenance of his face will shine upon you, which means you have his favor, his love, his blessing, which means whatever cross you take will ultimately become glory. What, whatever loss you experience will ultimately be gain. And so go courageously bearing your cross, following him, that the world might know that there is a God who loves them, that it might be healed of sin and death, uh, that the new creation might come, that the earth might be turned into heaven, that God's will might be done here as it is there now. Receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.